God's wrath is not something that somehow is connected to an irritable disposition. It's connected instead to his justice. God is only angry when failure to be angry would be immoral. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a 14-part series in Romans 1 titled God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. You know, the book of Romans is considered to be the most comprehensive exposition of the gospel in all the Bible. Chapter 1 provides the introduction as well as the opening account of all God has done in creation and also where the Apostle Paul unfolds the reality of man's willful rebellion against God, specifically man's shocking response to God's revelation in creation. In today's opening message, you'll learn about the foundation from which this rebellion begins, what form it takes, and how you can identify if it's present in your own life. Well, Tom, as we begin, could you explain why we as Christians cannot ignore or downplay challenging passages and topics such as this? Well, you know, Bill, as a preacher of God's Word, I have no option but to preach the entire Bible. You can't make a case for skipping difficult or challenging passages. I have to be faithful to explain all that God revealed in His Word. But but I think Larger than that, for all of us as believers, Romans 1 helps us further define our understanding of who God is, the fact that he can't turn his back on sin, and that his wrath is a reflection of his holy and just character. This passage also helps us understand the depth of our own sin and and the desperate need to be saved from it. In the end, it shows us the importance of the gospel. As Paul continues in the book of Romans, he moves from God's wrath to God's grace, showing us that God is willing to justify all of those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now here on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we enter a new section of Paul's letter to the Roman believers. Romans chapter 1 and We come to the paragraph that runs from verse 18 down through verse 23. Let me read it for us as we begin our study. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is the word of our God to us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures." 
The theme that Paul introduces in this paragraph is certainly not a popular one in 21st century America. It's not even popular in the 21st century church. In fact, there are two typical responses to the wrath of God today. One of those responses is simply to deny it, to deny its reality. This is the response of those we would call theological liberals, those who reject the truthfulness of the Scripture, those who deny its integrity, who question its teachings. They simply deny that the, the reality of God's wrath even exists. The same is true, by the way, for the neoliberals, those like Rob Bell, who in his book, Love Wins, basically denies all reality of a future wrath, instead insisting that there will be only love, only grace, only mercy. But that's not the most common response to this truth. The most common response is simply to downplay it, or even in some cases to sort of ignore it, to act like it doesn't exist. This is true wherever there is a man-centered gospel. If you go to the typical seeker-sensitive church where a man-centered gospel is preached, you will find a gospel presented that appeals to the sinner on the basis of his felt needs, on the basis of, of his human longings, on the basis of his desires. The reality of God's wrath is also entirely ignored in churches that promote the prosperity gospel. I can promise you this, you will never turn on the television and hear Joel Osteen preach a message about the wrath of God. Tragically, even among those who can loosely be called evangelicals, some downplay this truth, even ignore it. Honestly, I think it's fair to say that among many evangelicals, there's almost a sense of embarrassment about the truth of God's wrath. Why is that? I think it's because of two misconceptions that they have about the wrath of God. First of all, I think they believe that to emphasize this theme is somehow mean and unloving. And they've sort of captured this from the culture. I mean, after all, when unbelievers talk about someone who, who preaches about the wrath of God, what do they label that person? He is a hellfire and damnation preacher. And the implication is clearly this person is just mean-spirited. And it is true, by the way, that there are those who preach on this theme in a mean-spirited, unloving way. There are those who seem to take some sort of twisted pleasure in God's wrath on the wicked, on the suffering of the ungodly. Or they may simply overemphasize the wrath of God. This is their only message, never balanced by the corresponding truths of God's love and, and His grace. But that doesn't mean that all who address this theme are mean-spirited and unloving. As we will see, the writers of Scripture do again and again. Our Lord Jesus Christ does. A second misconception that I think makes even some evangelicals a little squeamish about the wrath of God is they think that to attribute wrath to God is, is somehow unworthy of Him. It just doesn't seem to fit His person. And the reason for that is because they conceive of God's anger as identical to man's anger. And because man's anger, human anger, is capricious, it's self-centered, it's often irrational. Human anger is a rage that is characterized by the loss of self-control. It's motivated by wounded pride or just by a bad temper. And so they say, well, God couldn't be like that. And it's true, God couldn't be like that. 
If that were God's wrath, it would be unworthy of him. But that is not the biblical picture. God's anger is not at all like that. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead, listen carefully, a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry when anger is called for. God's wrath is not something that somehow is connected to an irritable disposition. It's connected instead to his justice. God is only angry when it is completely right to be angry. And let me put it to you this way. God is only angry when failure to be angry would be immoral. We understand this at a human level. I mean, what if I, what if I told you about a man who who witnessed, God forbid, the abuse of a child, and yet was not angry at that violation of that child, and didn't respond in a desire for justice to be done to the perpetrator of that crime, what would you think about that man? You'd say, he's a, he's a bad guy. Why? Because good men are angered by such terrible sins and injustices. A.W. Pink writes, listen carefully to this, indifference to sin is a moral blemish. Let me say that again. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, and he who does not hate it is a moral leper. You see, the opposite of wrath is not love, as the liberals would have us believe. The opposite of wrath is indifference and apathy toward evil. And God could never be like that. So it is part of God's holy character to find sin utterly repulsive and to desire that it be punished. God's anger is the holy, righteous expression of his justice. Because of that, the writers of Scripture are not squeamish at all about talking about God's anger. They do it everywhere and often. And his anger not merely against sin, but this will surprise some Christians, but also against sinners. Now, talking about divine judgment from God was just as unpopular in the first century as it is today. But Paul, when he starts to lay out the gospel to the Romans so they can understand the gospel he preaches, he doesn't begin by telling them that God loves the sinner and has a wonderful plan for his life. He doesn't begin by trying to address the sinner's felt needs. He doesn't offer the sinner better relationships, personal fulfillment, a successful career, a better marriage, health and wealth, or some other human blessing. When Paul set out to explain the gospel, he first underscored our need for the gospel by reminding us of all things of God's wrath against our sin. Verse 18 begins, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, with that phrase, Paul begins a new section in this letter to the Romans. So far in our study of this great letter, we have examined really just the opening of the letter found in the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Today, we begin the first major section of this letter. Let's call it the Gospel Explained. In this section, he explains the gospel, which is nothing other than justification by faith alone. 
This begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and runs all the way through the end of chapter 4, this section does. Now let's break that down a little bit more so you see the flow of Paul's thought. In this first major section, the gospel explained, Paul begins by asserting the universal need for justification by faith. This begins in verse 18 of chapter 1, runs all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. He wants to prove to us that every single one of us needs the gospel. The second movement in this first section is Paul's initial explanation of justification by faith. After he's presented the universal need in chapter 3, verse 21, and running down through the end of chapter 3, verse 31, he gives his initial explanation of what the gospel really is, and he explains justification by faith alone. Then all of chapter 4 He gives a biblical defense of justification by faith. He goes back to the Old Testament and says, listen, I'm not preaching something new. This was the experience of Abraham. This was the experience of David. And let me use them as a a biblical defense for what I'm arguing. So that's the flow of this first section. Now, now that we see the entire first section, I want to go back and and analyze how Paul lays out his argument for just the first movement in this section, the universal need of justification by faith. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and running through chapter 3, verse 20, this is where Paul presents this universal need. Let me show you how even his own words sort of demonstrate this. In verse 17 of chapter 1, notice Paul introduces the gospel And he says, it is this righteousness from God. Verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is from faith, from beginning of faith, from beginning to end, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So there he introduces this theme of the righteousness from God as a gift to the sinner based on faith alone. He returns to that theme all the way over in chapter 3, verse 21. Look over there. In chapter 3, verse 21, he comes back to this for the first time. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So, He mentions it in verse 17 of chapter 1. He picks it back up in chapter 3, verse 21. Between those two verses, between those two texts, Paul presents the evidence for man's universal need of the gospel. The reason we need this righteousness that comes to us by faith is because of our utter lack of personal righteousness. Now, why does Paul begin here? To paraphrase the words of our Lord... It's only those who are sick who go to the doctor. You don't just go to the doctor for fun. You think something's wrong. You come to the, you come to the awareness that you're sick. As Jesus put it, the sick are the ones who need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It's only when you understand you are spiritually sick or, to use Paul's metaphor, dead, that you begin to seek help. And that's what Paul does in these chapters. He wants us to see our need. So in chapter 1, verse 18, he sets out to prove man's universal need for the righteousness that God gives in the gospel, because it's only then that sinners are going to be interested in the good news when they understand the bad news. 
And he presents in this section overwhelming evidence to prove our guilt and to secure a guilty verdict against us. By the time Paul is done, there isn't one of us, there's not one person on the planet who can say, I'm okay with God. Now, as he proves our need for the gospel, as he convicts us all of being in sin and deserving of God's wrath, he begins by picking on the Gentile pagan. He wants to prove the need of the Gentile pagan. This is in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and running through the end of chapter 1. This is the person who doesn't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. Okay, there are people all over the planet like that. There are people in your life who don't really claim. They may know about God. After all, they live in North Texas. But they don't claim to worship him. They don't claim to be devoted to him. This chapter is aimed at them. Now, the verse that unlocks this first section and helps us know that, look at verse 23 of chapter 1. Here's who he's talking about in this section. It's those who exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of either corruptible man or birds or four-footed animals or crawling creatures. In other words, they, they were into idolatry. They replaced the worship of the true God with something else. These are Gentile pagans. The second group that he indicts are the Jews. Beginning in chapter 2, 2 verse 1 and running through chapter 3 verse 8. This section, as I said, is a confrontation of the Jews, but it's more than just the Jews. It's a confrontation, really, an indictment of every moral religious person who claims to worship the God of the Bible. Okay? Every moral religious person who claims some attachment to the true God, the God of the Bible. They may be Jewish or they may be Gentile. They may be moral and religious and somehow connected to the true God. Now, the key verse that marks out this section for us comes in chapter 2, verse 17. Here's who he's talking to in this section. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, the true God, and you know his will in the Scripture... And you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. You're confident that you're a guide, etc. So here are people who claim to be connected to the true God, and Paul indicts them. The third group he indicts is all humanity. This begins in chapter 3, verse 9, and runs down through the end of this section, verse 20. Here is Paul's comprehensive indictment of all humanity. Now, the key verses in understanding this section, verse 9, look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better than they, that is, the pagan Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, and Greeks here is used in the sense of Gentiles, are all under sin. That's what he's done in the first couple of chapters, as it is written. And now he's going to get completely comprehensive. There is none righteous, not even one. And and this whole passage flows that way. But go down to verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Here's the key. So that every mouth may be closed. What Paul is dealing with in this section is to bring every single human being to the point that when he stands before God in the judgment, he has nothing to say. 
All he can do is cup his hand to his mouth and shut up because he has no excuse. He goes on to say, and all the world may become accountable to God. That's the focus of this section in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. It is a comprehensive indictment of all humanity. Now, today we begin the section that runs from chapter 1, verse 18, down to verse 32. Go back to chapter 1. We begin the section that begins in verse 18 and runs down through verse 32. This is Paul's indictment of all pagan Gentiles. This is every human being who is not Jewish, or if he is Jewish, he doesn't try to follow the true scriptures. So this is every person who is is disconnected from the true God, the true scripture. Now that we've oriented ourselves, go back to verse 18. Here's how he begins. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, the first thing to note here is that this sentence flows in the context. Notice it begins with an important word, for, because. What's the connection? Paul links the wrath of God to the gospel that he mentioned in verses 16 and 17, the righteousness from God. What's the connection? Listen carefully. God's gift of righteousness revealed in the gospel is necessary because, verse 18, his wrath is being revealed against man's sin. In other words, you need the gospel because you and I, we are completely destitute of any righteousness that will satisfy the demands of God. And therefore, we all are worthy of and are exposed to the wrath of God. Our only hope is the righteousness promised in verse 17 that comes to us not by works, but by faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. So, let me give you the theme of this paragraph I just read for you, verses 18 to 23. This is the theme. The Gentile pagan has rebelled against God's general revelation in creation, and therefore he is without excuse and deserves God's wrath. I just want us to get our arms around this subject that is so foreign to most Christians. Uh, Frankly, our thinking is very fuzzy about this idea of the wrath of God. Let's look at it together. We need to begin with a definition, a definition of God's wrath. Understand that men have tried to deny this part of God, this aspect of God for millennia. Before Christ, there were Greek philosophers who said, To say that God inflicts wrath on people is only for those who are unenlightened. You just, you're not really enlightened if you think that way, the Greek philosopher said. It continued after the time of Christ. In the second century, there was a a heretic and a Gnostic named Marcion. And Marcion cut the words of God out of verse 18. He argued, this is an old, you've heard this argument. You didn't know where it came from, but you've heard it. Marcion in the second century, a Gnostic, argued that there was a dichotomy between the loving heavenly father that Jesus taught about and the wrathful, vengeful Jehovah of the Old Testament. Same ideas continue in our time. Last century, C.H. Dodd famously taught that the wrath of God is not some personal reaction of God. 
Instead, quote, it is an inevitable process of cause and effect in a moral universe. In other words, when the Bible talks about wrath, it's not talking about God. It's talking about this, this sort of process God has put into the universe where there's cause and effect. Folks, those are simply attempts to evacuate the clear meaning of the biblical text. Scripture teaches that, are you ready for this? That wrath is a part of the God we worship. As one author put it, as long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction. Now, when we refer to God's wrath, what do we mean? Let's come up with a working definition. Here's a pretty good one. This is from Alan Cairns, Dictionary of Theological Terms. Here's wrath. It is the settled opposition of God's nature against evil, his holy displeasure against sinners, and the punishment he justly meets out to them on account of their sins. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will bring you part two next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.